Photographers Commerce Podcast, proudly presented by Masters in Motion. This week is with cinematographer and director Alex Buono. Uh, I have uh, known Alex for years. He was one of the uh, first speakers at Masters in Motion in the early years. I might have been the first year or the second or third year, something in, in the beginning. And, um, you know, at the time he was heavily involved in the uh, Saturday Night Live film unit. He had been doing it Basically, as he tells in the in the story of the podcast, that he I think his first time was in the year two thousand, um, and so that he had been involved in seventeen or eighteen seasons of the show, and was kind of stewarded it through the technological revolution that happened in the industry um, across that time, and you know that he started the film unit on thirty five millimeter film and worked his way all the way to you know where we're at now uh, with with you know the wider for a array of cameras that are available and that uh, he also is now uh, shooting and directing documentary now and he was uh, just as recently as a couple weeks ago was uh, nominated for an Emmy uh, and so we talk about his whole career and um, you know the changes that have gone on and, and not just on the technical side but for him and that now he's really uh, only looking to direct and that it's been kind of this long road of of uh, getting there and that he's excited about what directing will bring that cinematography can't at this stage in his career and we we talked about all of it so and and especially with the things like documentary now just kind of getting into the nitty-gritty of how you handle something so interesting with the um, the satire uh, and how you approach it on a uh, t technical level was uh, was really fascinating and something you know I've been a fan of the show for since it came out and it's great to pick his brain because um, the job that they do on that is you know second to none and it's the reason that they get nominated for Emmys so there you go and uh, like I mentioned uh, we are sponsored by Masters in Motion which is a three-day filmmaking conference that happens every year in Austin Texas uh, P Alex Bono was a uh, was a speaker for example uh, we have ASC cinematographers ACE editors world-class production designers everyone comes down they give talks they give hands-on practicums and uh, it's a great three days and um a big part of that is the social opportunities, networking with uh, attendees, but also with the uh, with the speakers. You can buy them a beer at the end of the day, pick their brain, hang out. It's uh, it's a social atmosphere and it's a lot of fun. So uh, you can go on to shooteditlearn.com to buy tickets. And right now there's a discount code of AVCPOD. If you do that, you get $100 off. So please uh, go to shooteditlearn.com and do that. And so now this week is cinematographer and director Alex Buono. I guess start by just asking how are things going. I know that the Emmys just happened, so that must be must have been a whirlwind to be on the backside of. Yeah, no, the Emmys uh, are a whirlwind. It's a very long day. It's uh, having a small show like Documentary Now that is up against you know our friends at Saturday Night Live. Who, yeah, uh, I worked with for a long time. Um, I wouldn't say that you expect to win. Uh, right. I think that uh, it's just a fun. You know, it's. It's one of those places where you just see a lot of people that you don't get to see very often. I haven't, you know, I sure. get to check in with all my SNL friends and mm -hmm. it's a fun time. Yeah, no, of, of course. Of course. Do you, do you know what yeah. you're, do you have anything that you're planning on gearing up for now or is it back to the, another season of Documentary uh, Now, things like that? We've got uh, another season in the works for Documentary Now. That's awesome. Uh, season four that we just started writing. Uh, that won't come out for another year, though. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's kind of aiming for a 2021 release. And it's a weird show because it's it's such a small show, and it's it's made by, you know, a group of us that used to work together at SNL, and everyone's very busy. And 
because it's an anthology series, there just isn't the pressure to like to keep our audience on the hook of a serialized, you know, like yeah, um, that makes sense. Have, totally. So what we discovered last season, you know, we we took a year off uh, in between season two and season three, and and you know we were afraid that it was all people are going to forget about us. They won't even know that the show, they'll forget the show existed or they'll be mad that we left for so long. And it was kind of the opposite. It was like, Oh, we can't believe you're back. Yeah. So, uh, it's a show that kind of only exists because there's a group of us that feel like making it. It's definitely like everybody's sort of passion project. And Uh, it sounds a bit uh, like a dream in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, it's a show that it, it's, it's so small that it, it couldn't, just exist every year because everybody else has to do other jobs to be able to come and do it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, it's cool. Like when, when it's somewhat of a passion project for everybody involved while still being as, um, still a proper show that, you know, has, it has a, has a place in the culture, you know, not, not a lot of passion projects fill that tick both boxes at the same time. So that's, that's really cool. Yeah, no, no, we're super pleased that it has an audience at all and that critics seem to like it. It's, It's something that we, we, set out to make for ourselves to amuse ourselves and, and it continues <laughs> to be something that it's funny in the room there's there's really not much discussion of like you know what, what do we think everyone wants it's just sort of like people trying to crack each other up so it's like oh that's so much better know, when it's what you want i mean if that's your yeah. guiding light then you're not gonna i don't know go down the wrong rabbit hole because you're trying to guess what other people want and that's always yeah. a crapshoot um yeah cool well i i I wanted to go back, you know, I think when I speak with anybody, I'm trying to, you know, find little, I don't know, tidbits about their career, their life and like looking at IMDb stuff. I I found it pretty striking that unlike some other people that I've spoken to, it seems like from the very early stages, you were always a a DP and there wasn't that much time working your way up the ranks that it might have been that you were doing like smaller things as a DP, but that it's kind of been that from the from the jump. And I was just curious to hear about that, I guess how you made that happen for yourself and like, was there a certain level of intention of, you know, not really wanting to spend too much time in other roles and just diving into that and just letting the projects of doing that kind of grow. Do you mean like, uh, jumping into being a DP or or moving from being, Oh, okay. Uh, actually, you know, I went to film school and, uh, when I got out of, while I was in film school, Mm -hmm. um, I went to USC and, uh, Mm -hmm. It's a it's a program where, you know, it, towards your senior year, it becomes very selective about who gets to direct a senior level project or who gets to. So you you sort of, mm. in some ways, you sort of pick your lane early. Yeah. Um, and I found myself naturally gravitating toward photography and toward cinematography. Um, you know, but I, I think myself and most people, I think, go to film school particularly for undergrad, you're out of high school and you don't really understand what, either what, what role you might, you might be good at, or also just, you know, what is attracting you other than I, well, I want to make movies or I want to make TV shows, you know? Yeah. Some people I think are like, maybe, maybe nowadays there's so much more uh, access to filmmaking equipment that maybe now when you're in high school, you have already identified, oh, I, I really like writing or I really like cinematography or I really like editing, but you know, I went to film school in the early nineties and mm-hmm. I think everybody just showed up and was like, I want to be in the movie business. What <laughs> yeah. do I do? Yeah. And, um, so, but towards the end of my time there, I was, you know, shooting a lot of people's short films 
um, rather than directing my own short films. And it just meant that I could get a lot more experience and work on a lot of other people's things. And my first job out of film school was I, I, I was able to work as a camera intern on Twister. Uh, wow. A big, you know, and so I, I started down this path of working as a camera assistant and I did that for a few years on really big, you know, silly movies like Twister and Armageddon and uh, did some work on. Oh, wow. I didn't realize uh, any of that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I did a, a, a movie called The Flood, which was, I think it came out, it was called Hard Rain. It was like a Christian Slater, Morgan Freeman movie. So I was definitely, I was like a, you know, a full on camera assistant for oh, okay. a few years. Okay. Okay. Um, and while I was doing that, I was uh, in between shows or on the weekends, I would, you know, continue to DP things that were you know, short films and music videos and things. And it became a camera assistant became a good place to go and see on these really this really big scale sure. how things were done and also to access to to talk to really great cinematographers and really great gaffers and really great people you know like how do I hey I've got to shoot this music video this weekend like what how would I do that you know yeah yeah and sometimes they would say oh here borrow this gel and try that or oh here you know show me what you've done when it's you know so there was a it was a good place to sort of learn and to collaborate and get a lot of advice. Yeah. That's super valuable. And, uh, yeah. And it's funny because that, if there's a pattern into what I've done, that's sort of been it. And then I have gone to work, uh, with people who are much more experienced than me and I'm just able, I, it gives me an opportunity to ask them like, well, how should I do this? Or what, what, what would you do? You know? Sure. Uh, I, I spent a few years as a camera assistant and I, as I was shooting, and then at a certain point, I had attained an agent as a cinematographer, but I was still assisting. And at some point, really? the agent was like, "Look, man, how do you, how do you do that?" Like, because I know that I was going to ask you now, knowing that you did spend those years uh, assisting, like, you know, what was that process in terms of trying to get become a full time cinematographer and leave assisting behind? I know some people find that somewhat challenging, but the fact that you found an agent before you even fully finished assisting that seems quite unique. Well, I, you know, when you're shooting short films and super low budget features, I mean, they don't, they don't pay anything. So yeah. I had, I had to keep yeah. working, you know, yeah, so totally. by, by working as a camera assistant, I could afford to, sure, I can shoot your short film or, you know, I can shoot your low budget feature and I won't, it, I mean, there were jobs where I like, I didn't get paid anything to shoot sure, yeah. somebody's feature. Um, and I could only do that because I, I had this sort of backstop of this, like I could go and work as a camera assistant for six months. That makes sense. And then I could spend a few months working on my own thing. And so there was this point at which I, well, the camera assistant is how I can afford to be a cinematographer on low budget things right now because they don't pay anything. And I was building up the experience I needed. And then there was just this weird time where I, uh, I, was, I was working on a short film. I'm, I'm trying to remember if this was the order of events, but I was working on a short film uh, I was shooting second unit on a short film. The first unit or the sort of the main cinematographer was this guy, Jim Hawkinson, who was at the time, like a really big music video cinematographer. He still is a big, he's a, he st continues to be a big name in TV and, um, shot a lot of arrested development. And yeah. at the time we were doing these weird, this really weird, super cool, like experimental short film. And then, uh, he went on to bring me on to a few music videos where he would say, Hey, can you come in and just shoot second unit, you know, or sort of just 
I don't have enough time to shoot all this stuff. You yeah, know, yeah. You get in there and you shoot those things. And I believe it was at the time, I think his girlfriend was an agent. And so she picked me up for representation. Uh, and I think it was just as a favor from Jim, mm. which was incredible. Um, and then uh, from there, I somehow parlayed that into representation um, at Datner Despoto, which is a bigger um, uh, cinematography agency at the time. Yeah. And uh, there was just a point at which they were getting me opportunities to shoot, you know, slightly bigger features. And I think it was the folks at Datner who were like, hey, man, you, you, you're really confusing people. You got to stop assisting. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I guess at that point, you did feel like, you know, you, you could probably survive by by making that full commit. Uh, yeah, it was tough. It was definitely like um, I was working on really big movies that were both as an assistant. Yeah. They were both like it would employ you for six months and they were also these crazy. I mean, it was at this weird time. It was sort of pre- VFX solving every problem. So mm. you had to do a lot of really practical, mm -hmm. like, um, and the shoots were very hard and they were very demanding. And, and part of that became, well, they also paid really, really well because how, how, how technical you had to long be. And, you know, uh, so yeah, I, working as a camera assistant, I, I, I was able to like pay off all my student loans and like afford mm -hmm. to pay my rent. And suddenly cutting that off and being a cinematographer that was, you know, rarely working because <laughs> you're just hustling for jobs. Yeah. Uh, and then when I did work, it was like a super low budget feature. So you're not getting paid very much. Yeah. No, it's interesting because I, I, I feel like sometimes when I have conversations with like a lot of interviews in a row, some similarities start to form. And, you know, yesterday I spoke with Robbie Baumgartner, who was talking about his transition from gaffing to DPing and, you know, just that there is this, this monetary safety in the fact that you've built up this whole thing in one way, but you need to make the jump. And I think a lot of people deal with that and there really is no like, you know, silver bullet of an answer, but at some point you yeah. just have to full commit. Yeah. Yeah. You have to make the jump. And I sort of, I think in my career, I've just made that, that jump a few times. Um, when I committed to shooting full time, um, I, I guess I got very lucky in that I shot a low budget movie that didn't really pay me very much, but the one of the producers of it happened to also produce the film unit at Saturday Night Live. Ah, and I was wondering how that happened. She was, we, we, it, was, it was during a summer hiatus and we got to know each other and like each other and she invited me to, hey, you should come and try shooting a, a film spot at SNL. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was like, I was like 24, 25 and, and uh, you know, I totally unqualified to suddenly be shooting Saturday Night Live, but it was a really, it was an amazing place to go and spend. I mean, I was there for looking back on it. Now I was brought on off for like 17 seasons yeah. of, um, uh, it became a place that I could go and work and, and it was, you know, uh, it paid way better than anything else that I was doing. And it was really creatively exciting. And I, there was suddenly I was able to play with a lot of the tools that I couldn't afford on these low budget movies. Yeah. So I could try things. Were you considering um, that? I was, I was going to ask you what you felt along the way. Cause I would imagine once you get to SNL, you know, your, your career is certainly taken off to a degree that would that, would you consider that what, why might've been like your first 
really big opportunity or big break in terms of in terms of films that you had made, or were there things prior to that? Um, I had uh, that was in '99. I think in the years from like '98 to like 2001, there was a I made a a low budget feature uh, in North Carolina that no one's ever seen. It didn't even get finished, but that was what led to the job at SNL. So maybe that was isn't that how it that goes? Was a really, like that was the most important job I've had, you know. It's kind of um, amazing, and that's a great takeaway too. Most important job you have is yeah. one that wasn't even finished. Yeah, um, uh, SNL certainly became the sort of uh, you know the place that I got mm -hmm. to keep coming back to, and that I could afford to continue to be a cinematographer because you know uh, it was just this consistent work, and and it was a place that I also forged all these relationships that are why I have a career today. Yeah, uh, or I continue to have a career. Um, but while I was there, um, and it's interesting, you know, in the, in the early days at SNL, when I was there, it, there wasn't, it, it was so different than it is now, you know, there wasn't like this, um, uh, culture of, you know, people watching SNL short films, uh, you know, on YouTube or there was no, maybe YouTube didn't exist yet. Yeah. You, know? you were making it just for really to be viewed on the broadcast and that's it. It was a broadcast and there's no other way to see it. Yeah. And the only way you could see it again was when the rerun came on. And uh, we didn't even make spots every week. I mean, there would be entire a month could go by and you haven't done another spot. Because oh, that's interesting. That, the, the show just didn't write a fake commercial. Makes sense. You know? Yeah, so, no, they weren't competing in the same way for just five minute stuff to get thrown yeah. online. I mean, it's practically more important than the actual broadcast itself. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a function that the shorts, at least they used to exist. I mean, it was they were a funny outlet. It was a funny... Uh, I, you know, expression of a satirical idea, but oftentimes it was like, we also just need a break in the show to turn the sets around. Mm, so we need to cut too. to something so that we can switch sets. Yeah, that makes sense. And we were providing this like three or four minute break. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm obviously now it's such a, a much bigger part of the show. Um, when you first and started. At the time, I don't. No, no, go ahead. I don't mean to cut you off. I'd say like nowadays, I think, directing or shooting the film unit at SNL is a really, it's a, it's a great opportunity because you're doing such high end stuff and you're sort of demonstrating so much dexterity and, mm. you know, visually and also just understanding all these different types of comedy. Back then it was definitely like just there, there you didn't expect it like, Oh, because I shot this like really low budget, funny fake commercial that that's going to get me a big feature or that's going to get me a TV job. It was just like, Hey, this is a fun place to work. These people are awesome. Even, yeah, even very, though, like the SNL cash, you know, I guess cachet wasn't as big. It wasn't as uh, Im important for you at the time. I mean, obviously it was a good gig, but it's not in the same way that you think now. I think that it's always been an incredibly important place for performers and for writers. Right. I And I think that on the film unit side, uh, it has the importance or the even just awareness of it has increased exponentially yeah. starting in like, you know, the early 2000s and kind of exploding with the birth of YouTube in 2005. And, the you know, and, and you can trace that back to, you know, Andy Samberg and the Lonely Island arriving. Yeah. Um, uh, but there were a number of things that sort of happened along the way that were, and it, one of them honestly was the way that cameras themselves developed. You know, mm. we when I was started there, we were shooting on film. We were shooting on 35 millimeter film and shooting film on a Friday 
Yeah. And you needed it to air it on Saturday. And so you're, you're literally daylighting the film, keep opening a lab just to process your film uh, while the editors are, I mean, this sounds insane, but the editors are cutting, a re they've recorded the video tap. And so they're starting a first cut based on what the video They made like a proxies out of the video tap. Yeah, and the video tap is just terrible. Of course, so yeah. kind of just hoping that like, I think this shot works, but I can barely wow. see it. Wow, And uh, so, yeah, I mean, and nowadays it's, it's like... No, that's a mind-blowing revelation yeah, about what they were doing. it's changed so much. When you were, um, when you were starting off and, you know, you, it didn't... I mean, I'm sure that you must have been at times, I don't know, when, especially in, in the, those first years and you're super young in your early 20s that you're... I don't know, intimidated or um, nervous, and maybe not even just because of the kind of history of the walls you're walking through, but also maybe about your own like level of craft ability at the time. How are you dealing with that stuff in the beginning? If they ever asked you to do things and you really weren't sure, maybe how, or maybe that didn't happen to you, you know? You know, it's funny. I You look back at like, I, I think my own, certainly my own experience, and you look at a lot of... Um, you know, great filmmakers, you know, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson is an example of somebody who was making such like ballsy films so early in his career. Mm -hmm. And there is it a sense of like, you know, this self-confidence that you have because you don't know any better. Right. Yeah, uh, totally. You haven't been kicked around. You haven't lost enough jobs. You haven't been starving for long enough to know, oh my gosh, I better not screw this up. You just have that confidence of like, I just got out of film school. I know everything. I know what I'm doing, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and I feel like I was probably way more confident in my early twenties. than then you go through a period of like in your thirties, at least for me, where yeah. suddenly everything becomes like, Oh man, I, I don't know anything. Cause you kind of, now you know enough to realize, wow, I didn't even realize how little I knew. Mm. And now I'm realizing how little I know. And I, I'm not, I'm not qualified for this. I, I can't have this job. I can't, you know, and yeah, how funny is that? I was like, yeah. I'm suddenly insecure. And I think it's just this cycle that you go through. Cause mm. I sort of feel like, uh, I kind of, I, I somehow came around that curve where I started, I felt like, you know, I, I don't feel as confident as I think when I was in my early twenties, just myself and my fellow, you know, recent film school grads, that we were on felt like we were on top of the world and we were going to take Hollywood by storm and we we're yeah. going to get this low budget film's going to win an Oscar or whatever your hope and dream was. Yeah. Or you could go to an investor. You could go to your and a lot of times, you know, it's like your 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 friends and family and promise them like this movie is going to make a hundred million dollars. You know, and I just trust me, I know exactly what I'm talking about, and you have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and nowadays, for me to go and, and, and pitch for money for something, I have a much harder time now. I feel like yeah. I'm much more inclined to be like, well, let's be realistic. You know, I mean, like, this is a really hard business, and I'm just like a terrible pitch man for myself because I'm trying to just, I now have the self-awareness of like, well, the odds of anything happening are so low or things take so long, like, mm -hmm. let's not get ahead of ourselves, you know? Yeah. No, but it's it's good to know that I think I mean I think it's a great answer to the question that sometimes like the confidence that youth brings is yeah. a big part of that early move making, you know? Yeah. Truly. Yeah. Um as as the uh 
SNL film unit really started to build itself out and things started to get more like, well, I guess, you know, you, you had mentioned when YouTube came on the scene in 2005, um, was there any, uh, one, uh, moment for you where you kind of noticed some sort of pivotal shift where you're like, wow, like this has become, you've been doing the film unit for years, but maybe now you st are starting to really feel, uh, it's importance at SNL, but also within the culture at large, and you're that there was like a defining moment where that like kicked into a new gear. I feel like uh, I feel like for SNL, and I should be clear that when Andy Samberg and Lonely Island came in, I mean they were their own self-sustaining operation. Like I gotcha. didn't have anything to do with gotcha. their best early spots. You know, I had nothing to do with Dick in a Box or yeah, you know, Lazy Sunday. I mean, they just they came in as this creative force. They did all that stuff themselves. And the way that those two spots in particular blew up was really mind-blowing. It was suddenly the everyone in culture is talking about Lazy Sunday or they're talking about Dick in a Box. And, and uh, you know, and at the time, I mean, I had been there for years and was making spots that had not taken on that sort of cultural significance. Right. Um, and it, it was really mind-blowing and eye-opening that, that something that we were doing at SNL could take off like that if yeah. it was the right sort of, um, the right amount of like, and I, I think what, what they did really well was they, everything that they were doing felt very effortless and it felt like that could be me. Like those are just friends that are making something really cool together. And yeah. it, it, at the time, and it's interesting with Lazy, with, with the Lone Island because they, they got very sophisticated and their filmmaking is really sophisticated and it's really high end. But when they first started out, it really did feel like these are just like, like three buddies almost. that have a video camera and they yeah. don't really know what they're doing, but yeah. it's super fun. They're just really creative and, you know, smart people. Um, and honestly, like whether or not that was partially an act or whether that was exactly who they were, I couldn't even tell you, but um, mm. for, for those of us uh, who were, in the film unit or at Saturday Night Live, but not a part of Lonely Island. It was really eye-opening and really exciting. It was like, wow, man, look what this could be. Did anything change in terms of your technical approach as the film unit's content started to become more and more popular? Mm -hmm. Was there like, I don't know, if it's something like a budget increase or like were you able to start doing, pushing um, further into, you know, cinematic... Um, uh, attempts and executions or was it always kind of the same and it just got more popular? Uh, I, you, I think you can trace the, um, it's almost like the popularity and also the, uh, I don't want to say quality because I think that the, the writing and the performing has always been really great. Right, but right. in terms of the, the, I don't know, I guess the production value, you might say. Yes, exactly. The production value increased with the uh, sort of, camera revolution of the 2000s that makes sense so that if, if, and i and i i literally walked the show through like every possible camera format that existed so yeah. we started on 35 millimeter film and then a couple years later we were making these same shorts on mini dv yeah thinking like mini dv this is the future look at this and like really it looked <laughs> terrible you know yeah. it looked so much worse yeah and yet we were like but this is the new thing and yes it was much smaller and it was easier to shoot with and it enabled us to move a lot faster and there was definitely a period where we felt like, and some of this I think is the influence of the Lonely Island, is that no, no, filming it shouldn't be this big thing with these big cameras. It should be nimble. It should be small. We should be able to move fast. We should be able to be reactionary. And and these 
performers are so funny and they're improvising, we should be able to move as fast as they are. And that's what that little tiny camera system allowed us to do. Sure. And yet production value wise, like, yeah, like the production value of what we were doing, you look back at some of those spots and they're just terrible. Uh, and then, we, you know, there was this wave of like from mini DV into like sort of larger format DV cameras, all like the history of what I did at the show is almost like the history of like the development of high definition cameras. Yeah, that's super fascinating. Anytime an HD camera came along, we would shoot with it. And sometimes we would be the first people to shoot with it. Yeah, they wanted you to like it, test it out. And there's a, that, it was cool for them to, a, to be used by the it film was a, unit. It's a unique place where we can shoot something and it goes on the air the next day. Yeah. And so if you want people to see what your camera looks like, give it to the guys at SNL because it'll be broadcast tomorrow Yeah. as opposed to a year from now. Sure, yeah. <clears throat> and so we did a lot of experimenting with different camera systems and you just, what, it got, it got a little better and a little better and a little better. And to be honest with you, like for me, the, the, one of the biggest, uh, I guess, watershed moments in my time at SNL was yeah. actually the emergence of DSLRs. Sure. And when we, we suddenly had one season where we shot the title sequence with a 5D Mark II. And uh, that was a huge, you know, oh my, look what we can do with these tiny little cameras now. That, that, this doesn't look like crappy mini DV. This looks like mm-hmm. what we used to see on, and we were just reacting to like depth of field, but suddenly it was like, this looks great again. <clears throat> and it's, it's hard to remember that like at that time, uh, the red one had just come out. Yeah. And some, we tried to use the red one. And I remember the, the Lonely Island guys were starting to use the red one. And it was such a difficult workflow at our show because our show is so fast turnaround. You could not get the footage, yeah. like, uh, you know, turned around fast enough to mm. use. Um, and, but, you know, the Alexa did not exist yet. Uh, all these amazing new cameras that we have now totally didn't exist, didn't know they were coming down the pipeline. And uh, it took that that period of the sort of like post 2009, suddenly there was this wave of all these new, every six months there was a new camera. Yeah. And uh, I, I feel like to some degree it's slowed down a little bit, or maybe I'm just not paying as much attention, mm. but um, it th- feels like we've hit a sort of a peak where like now so many digital cinema cameras are like, yeah, they're all really good. They all have a large camera sensor. They all have about the same dynamic range. They all, you know, there's, they all shoot slow motion at about the same. Some are a little better at that. Some are a little, but uh, I feel like the the explosion of like, man, I got to get my head across ten different cameras right now because they're all different. Yeah, is sort of relaxed a little bit. Yeah, no, but that was a pretty wild few years there. And you were put in a really unique position to be, you know, like you said, this like test bed for all of this stuff. And I know that you know, I think cinematographers. Uh, Hollywood cinematographers always had a certain level of um, notoriety within the field, but along with, in this moment of the DSLR revolution, in the same moment of the internet in general, I think that there was also a thing where certain cinematographers were gaining a type of notoriety that didn't exist either uh, because they were able to champion these new formats and be kind of the talking head about the experience of what it's like to use them, especially in um, professional arenas. And I think that that, that you were one of them and, and, and that was awesome. Like, you know, the way that you, I, I remember the early days of coming to masters in motion and giving, giving really great talks about that and becoming, you know, I don't think that you were getting mobbed in the street walking down fifth Avenue, but you were known. And, and, um, that must've well, been that, new that for time, your like, career as well. I, 
I remember being aware. I, I didn't ever really go hard into like the social media. No. Uh, the way the people did. Right. There was a period where I remember being aware of it, you know, and these guys who became my friends and who I think are really incredibly impressive and, and, and incredible in the way that they immediately harnessed these new camera technologies. But like you look at like Vincent Laferre and Philip Bloom were at that moment, they were the most famous cinematographers in the world it's by great. far, yeah. yeah, by far more famous and more well-known than Roger Deakins or, you know, like any of the big names that work in Hollywood, you know, there are, you know, a hundred thousand filmmakers in Thailand that know exactly who Phil Bloom is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it was a, it was a really interesting time. I feel like uh, even I, it's funny. There was also a period where there was this group of us that we kind of all knew each other and we would see each other at the different sort of trade show events and, it was a real time of like, you know, social media was exploding. Twitter suddenly became invented and our, uh, people were harnessing it. Uh, and I would see that group of filmmakers, you know, once or twice a year. And uh, it was like a social group for a while. Mm-hmm. And it was really cool. And I, it's funny because I've sort of, I feel like I've either I've dropped out of that social group or that social group just sort of dissipated a little bit as the rest of the filmmaking community kind of, you know, everyone's sort of, okay, I, we get it. We get what these cameras are. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for telling us about them. <laughs> we got it. No, I, I think, I think it was the latter, but yeah, no, I, yeah. cause that, that, that's obviously so interesting. And then, you know, but as, as time goes on, like you're saying, you know, we do, everyone starts to understand what the, the cameras are and it really just keeps coming back to yeah. the content and what you're making with it. And I, I remember one of the things that you had made that really stuck out to me oh. where it, it, it became, especially because my understanding of just, you know, cinema in general and, and the craft of it had been growing for me personally was the um, the Wes Anderson spoof that you did for the film unit, the, the something with Coterie was used in the in the title. Yeah, 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 yeah. The um, uh, yeah. Midnight Coterie of Sinister Intruders. Yeah, yes. Now, like I, when I think when I think of the SNL film unit in, in its in its heyday of like in that realm, I always think of of that one. And and to me, that also, I think that it hinted at, you know, I I believe in. Tell me how you feel about like where documentary now had a place, just in terms of like ultra ultra biting of of style um, to the, you know, and and basically mocking it and and doing it in that way. Um, and I was curious about that traveling, I guess, content move for you from, from SNL to documentary now. And I think a lot of that also has to do with the fact that you were probably making a lot of, um, you know, friendships with the, some of the actors and writers on the show. And as you're doing that, are you in the back of your mind? Are you thinking about the opportunities that that might present? Or was it just because they're, you know, your work buddies and you're, you're just trying to get on with the people in, in the office? Like what was the thought process in terms of starting to craft that, way forward for you uh well i think so the one thing to be to sort of point out is that so i was the director of photography in the film unit reese was the director we were working with the same talent for a long time and at that time we had made a few spots that felt like these were the important spots to sort of figure out how you know are we going to move forward like are we going to all leave the show and never work together again that's one of the things that you to sort of get used to in the film business is that 
you come together with groups of people, you have this really intense experience, and then you never see them again. Yeah. You, you might never see them again. You know, and you, you leave the show, you're like, maybe we'll do another movie together, or maybe we won't, maybe I'll, and there are people that, man, I was like, you know, brothers and sisters with, and I thought, we're going to be best friends for life, and never seen them again. And it's yeah, just it's the wild. way that the business works sometimes. Yeah. Um, I made a movie in, uh, in, uh, in, the, in London called Green Street Hooligans. I was a cinematographer. Mm -hmm. I was also one of the producers. Mm -hmm. And made some really close friendships. The, 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 the production designer, Tom Brown, was such a great guy. I love that guy. I would love to work with him again. I just haven't ever... That was, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. I just never had an opportunity to, you know? Yeah. Um, so anyway, sorry. Uh, at SNL, uh, we did a spot called The History of Punk, which was a spot that Steph wrote uh, that was the week that Margaret Thatcher died. Oh my God. And it was sort of this, this tribute to Margaret Thatcher, but it was the joke was that it was, um, it, it was, uh, Fred played, it was, it was a punk band called Ian Rubbish and the Bizarros. And Fred played this punk, uh, band leader, uh, who his sort of downfall was that he was a Thatcherite. He loved Margaret Thatcher. And it's like in the eighties, you can't be, a punk rock star and a Margaret Thatcher, you know, fan. And so all of his songs are about how much he loved Margaret Thatcher. So that was sort of like the recurring joke. And, but that, that spot became this template for us because it was set in the eighties. It was, you know, it was fake TV interviews, fake, you know, um, music, uh, concert footage, archival footage, you know, then contemporary interviews looking back. It was kind of like this mini music doc, that became the template for SNL. And in fact, what happened was um, that spot went on the air on a Saturday. Fred Armisen had already been doing Portlandia for a number of years mm -hmm. for IFC. Yeah. Spot goes up on Saturday. The heads of IFC see it and they say, oh my, that, that could be a show. And simultaneously, I believe it was, well, Fred and Seth and Bill were like, yeah, this could be a show. And I, I literally think it, it could have been Monday morning they were on the phone with IFC saying, yeah, what do you guys think? Should we do this as a show? And they're like, <laughs> yeah, do, do it as a show. That's and there was, no, there was no pitch. There was no, like, let's develop it and let's come in and let's do the rounds. It was just a call to IFC saying, do you guys want to, you know, or, or a call from IFC saying, do you guys want to do this? Yeah, let's do this. And it was from there. And so, mind you, that was Bill, Fred, Seth, and Reese Thomas, the director and the producer there, yeah, yeah. Um, spent, I don't know, the next six months sort of batting it around. And I was coming and going as a cinematographer, hearing about it. Oh, that's really funny. Oh, that could be great. Oh, you know, and I had also, because I have a background in documentary as well, there were maybe some conversations that, oh, this would be funny. Oh, that would be, um, and when it came around to finally making it, um, and we knew that it was going to be made it, based in Los Angeles and it was happening at the same time as SNL was happening. Um, I think at the time, the idea was that Reese was going to direct, um, all the episodes, I think, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And there was just a point at which it was like, Reese couldn't continue to direct and produce all of Saturday Night Live. Yeah. It's while a lot also on your doing plate, all of God. Documentary Now. Yeah. I was at the time planning on continuing to shoot Documentary Now. I'm sorry, to continue to shoot Saturday Night Live and also then do Doc. It was the point it was like, hey, man, what if you stay in LA, <laughs> you co direct Documentary Now with us, um, uh, and you when won't. They keep coming back to SNL while you're prepping it. So it was sort of like this kind of uh, 
it, it helped get the show made, but it was also for me this incredible opportunity to step forward as a director. Did you want to direct? Have you had, did you have that desire prior? I had been, um, I had started to make a documentary um, when I was directing and certainly as a cinematographer, having worked with a lot of first time directors and first time producers, you know, you start to recognize, oh, okay, I feel like I could probably do this too, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think, it, I, I think it's, I think it's important to, um, for at least for me to bear in mind that I don't, I don't look at directing as like a better job than shooting, you know? No, no, uh, it's just a different one. It's such a different skill. Yeah. And so I, there, I think that when you start out in, in filmmaking, you look at it as this series of steps and then eventually you want to direct, of course. Mm. And there are certainly, there are a lot of people that like feel like, oh, that's, that's where I need the to pinnacle, get eventually. So to speak. Um, it's such a different job um, and it's directing something ultimately is, uh, I mean, in some ways it was, there's a lot of similarities to what I was doing for a, lot, a number of years at SNL and what I'm doing on Doctrine right now and, and that it's such a small group of people that make the short films at SNL and such a small group that make documentary now that it, it just felt like a very comfortable transition. Yeah. Um, but uh I, I yeah, will it was say the that ideal. It was in, the ideal for a number position. of. It was, it was like the ideal setup, I think, for you. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was great. I think uh, I had figured out early on as I was shooting movies that just being a cinematographer was not going to be enough involvement for me on a on a movie, mm. and so I started early on to also produce the movies that I was shooting. Because I just recognize that, like, well, I like the early part. I like the developing of the script. And I like the, I don't mind going out and asking people for money. And I also really like post-production. I really like being there and seeing, and seeing it come together, helping it come together. And I like the part where you sell it and where you, how are we going to sell this thing? How are we going to market it? And, and so uh, the hard thing as a cinematographer, and some people love this. I, I just, you know, my, I have friends who are really very successful cinematographers who, don't want this part of it at all. But yeah. for me, I just had a hard time like shooting something and feeling like we made this thing together. And then that thing goes off without you for like a year. Yeah. And they, then they really, then they really go make it. And, you know, uh, I kind of realized like, Oh yeah, like shooting it is a really incredibly important part of this process, but it really is uh, a very specific limited part of the process. Sure. Yeah. And if you're shooting something and you're not, you know, you're not a part of the post-production process, uh, particularly on the kinds of things that I was doing at SNL and at Documentary Now, where these these things are made in post. Uh, for me, it just I I wasn't getting enough, uh, I guess, satisfaction and creative involvement out of these projects. Mm -hmm. So, so I kind of knew that, like, well, when I as I started to produce the things that I was shooting, that I was like, well, this feels better. You know, like I feel like I'm right. a part of this thing now, and I would sit in on the edit, and I would sit in on the mix, I would be there for everything as opposed to just showing up a year later for the color session and being like, Oh, how'd this thing turn out? Oh, yeah. wow. That's, you know, yeah, 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 totally. Uh, some people love that. Some people like, look, I'm a DP and I can just shoot four or five things a year and I don't get tied up in development and I don't get tied up in post and I can just keep working on those things. And that's my deal. And I think that's great too. I just knew that I would rather, Oh, you know how your mind works, you know? Yeah. 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 
So I, for me, like directing has been a really natural uh, extension of what I like doing. No, that makes total sense. I think that that's like the perfect answer. And I, I, I understand where you're coming from too. I think that in, there are certain things where my, my head is the same way. So to hear you articulate it like resonates for sure. In terms of, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the, um, just like, I guess the technical, the technical or conceptual approach to documentary now, because it watching, you know, watching documentary now, it's, uh, my thought process is always like, my God, like you have to be so, well versed in whatever you know the thing that you're that you're emulating is and i'm just so curious like it, it feels like the research goes so deep to really understand it on so many levels um because it's not even you you know obviously on one on one hand on a technical side you can just list out all of the all of the things that you are doing you know literally shot for shot but then there's the other things of even understanding the context of time in which it was made and the, you know, the era in which whatever it is came out and what was going on culturally at that time and having those things infused in it too. So it's just so many layers and I'm, um, it's, I think that's what makes it so astounding. And so, you know, um, that's why people love it so much. And I was just curious about how do you go about approaching that per, per episode and what your, what the process is like, I guess as the director and then also as a DP. Yeah. Um, well it, there's an aspect to it. There's a technical aspect that just feels like the natural extension of what uh, I was doing for so long at Saturday Night Live, which is sure, that yeah. sort of like detective work that you do to try to figure out if you're at SNL and you get handed like a Tony Scott style film trailer, it's like, okay, so you have to be able to like immediately turn on the like, what are the things that are going to make this look like a Tony Scott movie? Uh, we have to shoot this tomorrow. So what can I do? <laughs> yeah. And you just kind of get really quick at sort of understanding, oh, I, I can do that. I, I could never do that. I could do this. I could do this. That's way too expensive. Don't even think about that. Right. Um, and those muscles just get sort of developed where you're like very comfortable oh, yeah. in the, you know, imitation game, which is what, that's, what just, that's what it was for so long. Um, uh, Documentary now, I think has become much, in a way much more satisfying partly is that it's a it's it's a longer format and so you can tell a full story but it also it it has more of a like uh, our own story set in the universe of someone else's documentary but it can be our own story um but yeah the the, the technical exercise of like okay so you know watching somebody else's documentary and recognizing okay what is this and so literally from as simple as like what camera was this shot on? What lenses were they using? Mm -hmm. How do I think they lit it? Mm -hmm. How how does this filmmaker, uh, where does this filmmaker stand in the room? You know, does this filmmaker like to zoom or do they like to use the zooms or, or, or cut out the zooming part and just use, you know? So all those questions that are just happening as soon as you're watching anything, sure, uh, you're, you're just sort of making note and and the fun, and then just one of the fun challenges of the show becomes like, oh, I see what they're doing, okay. Oh, that's cool. I, oh, okay. That's, and for me, what's really fun is if you look at, uh, part of it is I think all of us who work on the show are just kind of also film nerds and enjoy the historic historian side of what we're doing. And oh, that shows recognize that, for sure. You know, there was a period of time when, you know, cinema verite and direct cinema was being invented and there were filmmakers that were, that worked together and, you know, when the Maisel's brothers and 
DA Pennebaker, um, you know, were making films together and, and, and for each other, but then developed their own styles. And there was a period where like, well, here's two black and white 16 millimeter cinema verite documentaries that on the surface, they're very similar, but one is from the Maisel brothers and one is from uh, Pennebaker. Uh, and what's the difference? Because we're going to do both of them this season. What's, how do we, how do we identify the nuances? And you start to just go, Oh, you watch it enough times. You can just see, Oh, I see. They just have a different approach. Like, and in that case, that is a case where, you know, Oh, the Maisel brothers, they find these compositions and they sort of, they, they find themselves in a corner of the room. They stay out of the, you know, and they let the, the, you know, the magic happen. Uh, Pennebaker was a little more about like getting in the middle of it and, zooming in and zooming out and then using that as part of the language of what he's doing. And so that's just becomes part of what you're saying. Okay, well then we'll do that. And part of it is, it's funny because it feels like cheating because a part of what we do is just, well, what did they do? We'll do that. Right. So what lenses did they use? Okay. I'll just go find that lens. Well, what, how do we, how do they light this? Oh, they have this old daylight that was made in 1961. I'll just buy it out on eBay and I'll just do that. Hmm. And so, it's less of like, how can I make this uh, modern, you know, amazing RGB LED that I can control with my iPhone? How can I make that look like uh, a PAR lamp that was made in the 60s? I just don't do that. I just like, you know what? I'll just You'll get, just the, get the lamp. The yeah, yeah. But what's kind of cool, I think, and, you know, I'm just guessing here, but it probably feels there must be moments where since you have set up everything exactly the way that they do it, that. I would imagine at times then in the process, like on the day during production, some of your gut instincts on what to do for any given moment might start to resemble what they would have done because mm -hmm. you had set up the environment to be, to be just as such. And that might be just super intellectually stimulating to kind of just put yourselves in the worlds of these, uh, these other filmmakers and then find yourself maybe naturally making choices when a choice needs to be made as it does a million times on a production that um, they might have done because you've oh, kind right. of put yourself in that world. Yeah. I mean, part of what, part of the secret is I just ask the filmmakers, what did you do? Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> At this <laughs> and, point, and, yeah. Uh, and for those who are, you know, most of the people that we have satirized are still living and have all been really good sports about, oh, this sounds fun. Here's, here's what I did. Yeah. Um, we did a, 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 there was a Broadway musical documentary called Company that T.A. Pennebaker made uh, that uh, we satirized in an episode called Co-op. And it was just Verite, two cameras in a sound recording booth with a cast as they were singing a, the Broadway soundtrack to a musical. And I, and I was like, you know, watching it, I'm like, it's, I can see a light there and I can see a light there. Um, I don't see any other lights. Uh, I know these, I know how Panabaker liked to shoot with his 16 millimeter camera and what lenses he used. So I'll get that. And I said, I just, I just asked him like, so how did you like this? Like, what were you doing? And he's like, we just went and we swapped out all the light bulbs in the room to be this amperage. And I just did that. We just did exactly what they did. And at a certain point, I'm like, man, this looks remarkably like yeah. the real thing because I've just reduced the variables to where like, it is the real thing. This is what they did. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, that must be cool too. Like, you know, you continually are making 
changes to your environment to get it closer and closer to the thing you're satirizing. And then there must be that moment where you find you're looking in the lens and it's like, Oh yeah, this is, this is that thing. There's a moment where you it, definitely on a lot of these spots where you suddenly are looking at the monitor going, wow, that <laughs> is, that is the thing. And what's really cool about that is then um, there's a, there's a time when the, the, imitation game ends and then you're creating something original yeah and once you've got to the point where like it looks just like we want it to look then you can kind of do your thing because which is super cool you know yeah i mean that, that that's that's got to be i i can understand why this is a well that you can keep going back into over and over because yeah. how how does that ever get old especially it's it's a really nice blend but it but it doesn't um it continually keeps evolving with every new uh, thing that you're trying to satirize because on the one hand satire yeah i guess you're doing that season in and season out an episode an episode out but what you're set what you are satirizing keeps changing so like it just keeps staying fresh um yeah i mean i think we we enter each season uh i think from season one we felt like oh this is a funny experiment let's let's try this and we did seven episodes and then each season it's like, okay, guys, that somehow we got away with that. <laughs> we don't need to do that again. Right. Because that really worked. We don't need to, we don't need to keep pushing ourselves until it breaks because we won't be able to keep this up. And then we did a season two and we're like, okay, that's definitely the end. We're not doing this again. Because <laughs> there's no way we'll be able to keep these balls in the air. And then we did a third season. And I, I think every season it just feels like that. Like, well, at some point, one of these is just totally not going to work. And right. It's just going to be embarrassing. Yeah. And uh, we were back in the room uh, last weekend talking about season four and like, you know, okay, we've, we've got an idea for another one, you know. That's and great. part of the difficulty of the show is that you start out and there is a lot of the low-hanging fruit of like the more popular documentaries that everybody knows really well. Yes. And we're kind of getting into the phase of like, is it but it's also fun to do something really obscure that like you'd have to go and find if you want to understand what the sort of the joke behind the joke is. Yeah, no, it is kind of interesting how it will take on new forms once the obvious choices have been done. Uh, yeah. But yeah. I think that's also what keeps it challenging. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And then now it's getting recognized with Emmy nominations, um, you know, and it, that definitely feels like it. I would imagine for you, that's like, uh, an obviously exciting new aspect of your career, making making content that is getting recognized in that way. Um, moving, looking looking ahead, are you hoping to branch even further out on the directing side and doing directing stuff that isn't as intimately tied to your cinematography, or primarily you want to keep cinematography as your main thing, unless very something something special comes along that allows directing to happen in a unique way? No, no, I I would say that uh, I. Uh, with the exception of documentary now, I don't, I'm no longer a cinematographer. Uh, oh, I, okay. I, I shoot documentary now partially because it's just easier. And I, and I almost, I, I credit Reese Thomas, my partner on the show, uh, as much as, you know, we both, the show's a lot of still photography. We both are shooting with cameras. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, it's just a show that we, it's such a small show and, in that instance, it's easier for me to just go, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Then for, for me to run it through 
another department. Yeah. Um, but I'm also doing episodic directing on other people's shows and I'm doing commercials and then all the, I'm not, I'm not shooting any of those things now. I'm working with cinematographers. And, um, so I guess you, you feel comfortable not, not being the DP anymore. Why, why is that? Um, <clears throat> some of it is that, you know, it, you, like documentary now is insane. It's too many jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, a perfect it's, it's really hard to be the showrunner and the director and the DP at the same time. Well, for sure. Um, I guess I meant that um, just in the sense of like, you know, you obviously have been doing cinematography for so long. The craft in and of itself is something that you can really love and that you're comfortable. Yeah. Um, you're comfortable not really performing that craft anymore, obviously, it, it, because it's allowing you to do new things as directing. And I, it's just um, how you came to that place, mm -hmm. why you're comfortable with that. Uh, I guess... Um, Partially because I recognize that there are other cinematographers that are way better than me that are really fun to work with. Yeah, okay. Um, and that uh, not thinking about all of the uh, responsibilities of cinematography uh, allows me to go sort of dive deeper into what my job is as a director and as an executive producer. Sure. Um, and, you know, I just, I just, I just directed a block of episodes of a, of a Hulu show called Future Man. Hmm. Um, I was up in Montreal and I was working with a uh, French-Canadian cinematographer named Sylvain Dupont. And she's amazing. And her, it, the collaboration with her was really exciting uh, in a way that if, I don't know, in some weird world, instead of doing that, I was doing a different show that I was also shooting. Um, I just don't have that opportunity for collaboration and I, I don't have that pushback in, in in the case of future man like sylvan was a very different cinematographer than i used to, than i was i guess yeah. and her eye was very different from mine. we both have i she has a, a background as an operator and so she was seeing things that i wasn't seeing and she was able to um and the way that she lights i thought was really exciting and it was totally different from the way that i light that's cool and so for me it was just really exciting yeah you know and i was like oh i would have never thought of that and and um, and also just, you know, not having to take on all of that, all of that lets me do a better job. Because there's a certain point at which I can't do the best job if I'm trying to do all of these things, you know? Yeah. No, no. That sounds, that, that's a great answer. No, well, that's exciting. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been an hour. Uh, I really enjoyed um, the conversation and hearing. I've always wanted to know the, the details of the, the film unit and documentary now, so being able to hear all that and also to know that you're now like moving into directing, it's all, it's been really exciting. And I you know, thank you for your, for your time and for the conversation. You bet. Thank you. Thank you.